Hi, this is Star Wars author Delilah S. Dawson, and you're listening to Clashing Sabers Network. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. This is the story of Star Wars. You can read along with me in your book. O is for Obi-Wan Kenobi. All rebel fighters met at fleet headquarters to plan their attack. Princess Leia addressed them. Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father. He told me enough. He told me you killed him. No, I am your father. Hello, I am C-3PO, and you are about to listen to the story of Star Wars. Another chapter is here. Welcome to Don't Burn the Sacred Text. I am one of your hosts, Brandon, and I'm here with my co-host. She is our resident Sembervay, and that means she just is here because she promised somebody she would be. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Lindsay. You know, you made the best of a bad situation because I feel like there are very few ways that you could bring something positive (laughs) into this. Don't get me wrong. I love the book, but it's a very dark book, not very optimistic, not very like feel good. So the fact that you were able to find find a way to squeeze something out there was pretty impressive. Well, I mean, we are just we're all not on your level, so. You know, we just got to <laughs> kind of keep up and you put up with us. But here we are. Yeah, guys, so t- <laughs> today we're going to be talking about Inquisitor Rise of the Red Blade. And I am beyond excited about this book. If you have listened in the past, you know that Lindsay and I are huge Delilah S. Dawson fans. And uh, so we were a little bit biased coming into this book. But I will just say uh, bias aside, it was okay. You know what, though? I would say us being big fans kind of makes it even more dangerous because you could say we're biased, but at the same time, we go in with incredibly high expectations for this. That's completely fair. Yeah, that's definitely... I mean, there are are certain authors that, you know, we talk about all the time on here, Claudia Gray's, for me, Justina Ireland, uh, that just are... We expect the best from them. And I mean, Delilah S. Dawson just delivers and she delivered yet again. So we're going to get into that. Uh, but before we do that, make sure if you are not on our Patreon, uh, if you're listening to this, we know you love Star Wars books and you can help us put Star Wars books into classrooms across the country by going on over to our Patreon and uh, subscribing there, donating a little bit, and 100% of that goes to buying and shipping books. We were just able to send uh, over $600 worth of books to a couple teachers, uh, one of them being a first-year teacher, and so we're really excited about the opportunity to be able to do that, and we appreciate you guys who support us over there. Uh, so, Lindsay... Let's go ahead and get into our ratings. For those of you who haven't listened before, we rate these books before our conversation and after our conversation. And uh, we're going to do that before right now because we've got a lot to talk about. So, Lindsay, you and I, we've said a couple things to each other, but we both finished this about a month ago and, and haven't really talked about it yet. So I'm interested to see what is your rating out of five for this book? Five out of five. Easy. Wow, so low, really? <laughs> I never saw that coming. So I want to preface mine with my five out of fives are books like Master and Apprentice and Brotherhood mm-hmm. and Shadow of the Sith. And I mean, I think Lost Stars was like the first five out of five that I gave. Um, and so coming up with a rating for this one was kind of challenging because 
This one is not just my new favorite Star Wars book. This is my favorite book of all time. Dude, I was thinking that. I swear to God, as I was going to sleep last night and thinking about like what we what we were recording this morning, I thought the same exact thing. I'm not even kidding you. That it was mine or that it's yours? No, that it's it's mine, not just like favorite Star Wars. So oddly enough, I don't think it is my favorite Star Wars book. I think Shadow of the Sith is still my favorite Star Wars book. But this is my favorite book. Okay, that's an interesting dynamic to have. Yeah, because I think it's it's like when we talk about the shows. It's much easier to, to put into words with the shows where, or even the movies. I say all the time that Rogue One is one of the best war movies I've ever seen. But it's not the best Star Wars movie. Because there's that element of things have to feel like Star Wars. And as you know, for me personally, I have such a deep connection to Ray. And there were so many things going into the new trilogy that I, I couldn't wait for the answers. And I felt like I needed the answers. And Shadow of the Sith, I think, you know, how many years, like 10 years later, finally started to give me those answers in a way that I was expecting and more hopeful that things like Aftermath or Bloodline would. So, so Shadow of the Sith, which is such a tongue twister sometimes, um, that that has those elements and that has those deep connections to things that I've spent years waiting for. And that's why it feels more Star Wars. But when you take that aside and you just think, what makes an interesting book? What makes an interesting or compelling character, regardless of fandom? This really has it. Whereas I think this is something that a a person could pick up having never read a Star Wars book, absolutely love this, and then go on to read other Star Wars books and not feel the same way. That That's definitely an interesting take on it. I mean, I don't know if somebody who's never seen Star Wars could really get everything out of this book. I think you do need some background knowledge. But if it's your first Star Wars book, I definitely think you would have trouble finding anything uh, to compare it to in the future. I'd say Dark Disciple is kind of the closest thing. Well, for me, it's kind of like, first of all, actually, let me backtrack because I didn't get my rating. My rating is a six out of five because I just need it to be separate from everything else. <laughs> yeah, you didn't, did you? <laughs> um, so six out of five because I don't want to lower the ratings of things like Brotherhood and Master and Apprentice and, and the other books that we mentioned that our, our master classes in both writing and in Star Wars. Uh, but this for me was just another level. But going back to what we were talking about before, you know, it's kind of like reading the Revenge of the Sith novelization and then trying to read any of the other novelizations and compare it to them. It's just, it's not fair. You know, like the Attack of the Clones novelization, for example, is a great book. I mean, you can't, compare it to, you know, uh, Revenge of the Sith. And even, you know, the the Rise of Skywalker book. For a lot of people, it made the movie better. And then there's certain elements of it that I like more than I like the movie. Solo, we said the same thing. There's certain elements of Solo that are better explained in the book than in the movie. But in terms of just how it executes Star Wars and the craftsmanship of the writing, there's nothing that compares to Revenge of the Sith. And that's how I feel about this book is the character development is 
amazing. The plot is, I mean, it's clear, it's crisp, it's clean, it's to the point. Like, there's no wasted space. Uh, if anything, this book could have been longer. Like, if I have a hit on it at all, it would be that. Um, and then just how it weaves into the Star Wars universe, the Easter eggs that you get, the the fact that you gave us Order 66 again and it didn't feel played is honestly something we should not just bat our eyes at. Like, in Bad Batch, we got Order 66 again. Didn't really care for it. Like, I love Bad Batch, but I'm like, okay, another... Or like, I get why we have to have Order 66 here, but do we need to see this again? Obi-Wan, do we need to see this again? There's only so many unique takes you can have after right. a while. And so, like, this was one of them. It reminded me... That particular scene reminded me of going back to Catalyst, uh, where you have Galen and Lyra and Jin running from battle droids, and then all of a sudden they just shut off. And you know as a reader, like, oh, Order 66 just happened and they gave the shutdown order, but the book doesn't really need to reference it a lot. That is a unique take on Order 66, is seeing it from the common man's uh, perspective, not the Jedi perspective of it, which we hadn't gotten before. And this one was really interesting because we got a Jedi that they didn't try to kill, which, you know, we talked about a lot as a fandom in season seven of Clone Wars, how, oh, you know, they're going after Ahsoka, even though technically she's not a Jedi. Well, here there's a Jedi that they should be going after that they don't because Palpatine has kind of earmarked her to be a part of this Inquisitorius that he's starting. So it was a very unique and interesting thing to experience of seeing another Jedi experiencing order 66 without being a victim of order 66, you know, like she kind of uh, got what she wanted through order 66. She got kind of validation of her beliefs that the Jedi were uh, a failure as an institution and that she was meant for something more. And in this case, that just happened to be turning to the dark side, which again, I'm rambling here, but that's another interesting take on turning to the dark side. Cause a lot of times we see turning to the dark side being like something like Anakin where you're broken and you're just trying to find uh, meaning. And here it's like, she does find the meaning, but it's more of like a validation of what she's always wanted instead of a giving up, uh, which is a lot of the dark side stuff we get. It's almost like a self-fulfillment prophecy too in this book, because it's also not like other, other stories where they kind of, mentioned feeling this darkness and, and feeling this anger and, and meeting with hate and all the typical stuff that we're, we're used to when we talk about falling to the dark side. This instead seems like it was, it was still fear-based, but the fear of other people se seeping into her. It wasn't like, you know, ever, everyone always references the, the famous fear leads to anger, blah, blah, blah. This wasn't her fear. She mentions over and over and over that all these other Jedi were afraid of her and that led to her hatred. It wasn't like she was personally afraid of, of dying or these other people dying. It was like forced upon her. And she, I think, never really wanted to go down that path. But she had to. Yeah, I mean, and, and all of it comes from, you know, what happened with her mother and, and these stories that they're hiding from from her, right? Which, like, the the Jedi Order, we talk about how flawed it was and stuff. And that's true, but we don't really get to see it a lot. You know, like, 
in the Clone Wars, like the animated series, we see, you know, Anakin falling and stuff, and we see him starting to turn towards the dark side, but we don't until like season seven, which really to me is more made for the fans that grew up with Clone Wars who are our age rather than kids. We didn't really get to see a lot of the institutionalization of the Jedi Order. And here we get that. We get how they protect their own power, how they hide things from their apprentices, how they're, you know, they are willing to bend the rules to do what they think they need to do rather than keeping to that moral code and that moral compass. And we really see that in two instances. One is the part of the story that reflects brotherhood where they become knights. And it's just like, well, you're a Padawan, you're old enough to do this, so we're going to go ahead and promote you tonight, even though, like, even Iskad is like, they've been telling me I'm not ready all this time. Like, why am I all of a sudden ready now that this war started? So it was a really interesting take there on how the Jedi Order sacrificed their morals, their traditions, their, really their culture in order to maintain their power. And then you also get it in the shape of them hiding what happened with Iskat's mother. And honestly, I think if they had just told her the truth there, she would have done, she would have been better off. You know, she would at least have answers. I think part of what drove her towards the dark side was the, the lack of people willing to give her answers. Like that's what really drove her to the darkness. And once again, I have to say, Mace Windu, you suck. Because he was at fault for a lot of this. (laughs) Oh, I was waiting for that. I mean, but really, like, this really gets to show, this really shows you what the, the movies kind of alluded to, you know, with him. And and I joke about Mace Windu because I, I really do think he's a good character. I think you're supposed to be upset with him and angry at him because he represents that that dogma, that rigidness, that uh, seeking to maintain power rather than seeking to maintain the meaning of the Jedi Order, you know. And that's the that's the thing Mace Windu represents. And in here we get more of an explanation of it. So I guess for you, like. How did this impact your view of the Jedi Order and the way that things kind of were devolving during the Clone Wars? Well, I think it confirmed quite a bit, you know, and and this I thought was interesting because we've seen this with Barriss, we've seen this with Ahsoka, but never in such in-depth and negative consequences kind of way. Um, Obviously, Barriss was pretty negative. Um... But just seeing how systematic it was and for so long, because I think with Barris with Ahsoka, what we typically see is these are the issues that started because of the Clone Wars. And this happened because we've become more militant. But this really does say, no, you know, this isn't just because we were at war. This has been an ongoing issue. This is something that's been happening for decades and decades and decades And it really did just confirm so much of what you and I have spoken about time and time again. And I think things you and I have really bonded over with. Here's the problem with these large organizations. And here's the problem with this group think and and why this dogma can be bad. Um, For me, though, what, what I thought was kind of the standout, aha, here's little bits of new information that we already kind of suspected. And then I really want to dive into more 
And it's going to be real consistent with what I've said time and time again about the High Republic and what I want from that. I loved seeing how thoughtful, how manipulative, and how long Palpatine started to work his way into the Jedi Order without ever being suspected. And I think that is the story that I want to hear next and that I hope we keep getting more of is while the Jedi were doing all this and while the Jedi were corrupting themselves and they had all of these issues in the Order that they never even knew about, here's how the Sith were already starting to set things up. Because that absolutely floored me. You mentioned it before, but we saw someone not just escape Order 66, we saw someone spared from it. And that's something, to my not correct me if I'm wrong, but to my knowledge, we've never really had that. Um, so I thought that was just a really cool point. And to hear how he kind of had spies already within the Order and how he used that, he didn't have to manipulate Ishkit the way he did Anakin. You know, he didn't have to have that personal relationship and tell these stories and sway these decisions. He was just keeping tabs on, here's what the Jedi Order is kind of doing the work for me, and I just need to know who. Yeah, really, like, he didn't have to do a lot. Like, he just fanned the flames a little bit and then gave them an opportunity. It reminds me of um, Gallius Rax in the Aftermath books, Mm. where it's like he didn't spend a whole lot of time grooming him like he did Anakin, but he gave him enough to be like, this is probably a route that I can go down. And the level of investment he has in each person is based on like what he wants out of them. Like he's obviously going to be more invested in Anakin because Anakin's going to be a tool with a wider uh, impact than Iscat. But it's interesting to see how he had all of these different building blocks. You know, he had the Inquisitors, he had the contingency plan. And I know a lot of people are like, oh my God, like Palpatine just happens to know everything. But you got to remember, this has been a millennia in development. Like, this isn't all Palpatine coming up with this stuff. Like, there's yeah. some background going on here. And I think we're going to get that more in like phase three of High Republic. I don't think we're going to get. Palpatine. I don't even think we're going to get the Sith, but I do think we're going to start to see more of that institution of the Jedi Order that he is able to exploit. Because like bureaucracies are inherently flawed because they're trying to to balance so many things and the they're trying to do what's right, but what's right to different people is is varied. And that's what I for me what went wrong with the Jedi is in the High Republic era, and probably as we get more stories before that, what was right and wrong and how you interact with the Force and those things were much more uh, pliable. I think we also kind of see that on the individual basis with Iskrat, just because there were so many places and things that she did, starting on Geonosis, where it really could be interpreted in different ways. You know, was this good? Was this bad? Was she right? Was she wrong? And is this redeemable? And I think that's kind of the major theme is there are so many points. And I think this is something Delilah Dawson does really well in all of her stories is she has these different plot beats and different things that are happening. 
and it should seem more episodic and it should be a little bit more disjointed. But thematically, she always has that common thread. And this was really no exception here, just because thematically that thread was who's right, who's wrong, when do we reach the point of no return? The hard thing about right and wrong is there's no like definitive answer, you know, uh, especially in wartime situations like that. Like when Iscat kills all those Geonosians, like the argument that what she did was wrong and the argument that what she did was right were both completely valid, you know, like the she went too far, but also she ended the, that particular threat in that particular area. Like what? what did you, what did they expect her to do? You know, like it was, they gave her a weapon, they trained her as a warrior and then didn't support her in terms of being able to one, like understand her own history and and how that's going to impact her. But then two, like what to do in these situations. Like they gave her all these tools and then were like, go build. And then when she built something that they didn't like, they're like, well, no, that's not what we meant. And they held it against her. It's like, well, you didn't set the standard, so how can you expect me to meet the standard? Like, if you move the bar after I've already done the things and then judge me by that bar, then, like, why does the bar even matter? Why does what I do even matter? And so it becomes a thing where you put a shield up around yourself, which she really did. Like, she insulated herself from the order at large and... Because what they showed her was, we're going to keep the goal a moving target so that you can never really figure it out. It's funny when you when you put it that way, because, I mean, you're right. And it's almost like she took the Jedi's famous, what they're always known for, from a certain point of view. You know, no, oh, if you twist it to this certain point of view, it was good. But no, I wasn't really lying. And, and this this really did turn out the way I said it would because of from a certain point of view, blah, blah, blah. I think she was kind of the first one to justify her actions to say, you know, from her point of view, but it didn't perfectly line up with what they wanted and where they were moving all these benchmarks and it didn't work out for her, but she was really doing exactly what she was taught to do. And they still just, the, the cards were always against her. And there was no way it was going to match up. And it just didn't work out for her, even though she was, on paper, a really good Jedi. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, she was a good Jedi. And she was trying to be a good Jedi. And even do it at the detriment of her own mental health. You know, that, for me, the thing that makes it such an impactful book is that internal exploration of Iskat's mental health issues, you know, and I love that Delilah Dawson started the book with that little preface about um, the suicide attempt that we would see in the book. So that's in there. But it also, for me, it just set the stage of, yeah, this book's going to have a plot. Yeah, this book's going to get into the dark side. But really, it's going to be about the internal struggle of this particular character. And so I think it does speak to the larger Jedi Order's problems, but equally it's just a great exploration of how somebody who it, you know has mental health issues struggles with these institutions that are not built for people to with differences to be successful, right? And so she just continually, continually has to mask. And for me, like as somebody who spent his whole life trying to like mask to fit in with different groups, it's like, yeah, that 
that's what it feels like. That's what it's like to do that all the time. And you change and you try to be what everybody wants you to be. And in the end, all you do is you, you lose yourself. So for me, you know, I masked for so long and, and then thankfully I had the, the loving support system to help me figure that out and go back to, you know, being true to myself and, and being a part of the light. Whereas she didn't have that. Not only did she not have that, but she felt like she couldn't accept it when she went and she finally found her people. She's like, I'm too far gone because of what the Jedi did to her and how they, again, like all who gain power are afraid to lose it, even the Jedi. And it's so true in this book because that's what really, truly cost Iscat everything. No, those are beautiful points. And I think Delilah Dawson Austin did a great job with that kind of warning in the beginning of hey, look, here is something you guys should know going into this book, but also here's why I did it. And you know it's handled sensitively and with care and with reverence. And it wasn't just an easy decision for the plot. Um, so yeah, I think I think she handled that really well. And it kind of also plays so many factors into it. One of the big takeaways I took from this story that we've had in Star Wars stories in the past, but we haven't really had it in a while, and this does a great job, is, is knowledge really power? And is giving a person that knowledge or hiding knowledge from a person good or bad? Because we can kind of go with, look, if the Jedi Order gave her the answers she not wanted, but was asking for, and if they trusted her to have certain bits of knowledge with, what am I trying to say? If they trusted her to have bits of knowledge and still be a good Jedi and still do the quote unquote right thing, how could this story have ended? And I think it would have been really, really different. And sometimes I think giving someone those really hard truths about themselves and their family it's not even just a good thing. It's something we, we have to do. And more times than not, hiding this knowledge from someone is going to hurt them more than it is protect them. And I think this was done really well. So we had from, from that one suicide so many different layers as part of the story. Yeah, I mean, there's obviously, you know, the argument to be made that, you know, certain things should be kept from people or whatever. But in my own lived experience, like, I feel like, of course, there's like a certain age, like you don't need to tell Iscat at like five what happened. But when she's old enough to handle it, you're doing more damage by hiding that kind of information from somebody. Because then they're going to one, they're going to have the original question. Two, that's going to cause them to spiral into other questions. And three, it's going to cause them to question if they can really trust you and you know you have her relationship with her master which is a great reflection of obi-wan and anakin about like they're doing it because of the promise that they made and that obligation weighs on both obi-wan and sember and leads them to do things they might not have done if they had a chosen a padawan based on uh you know somebody that they believed in somebody that they uh, trusted, those kind of things. And I think to a certain extent, like Obi-Wan and Anakin obviously, you know, became very much like brothers and, uh, 
I think in in a non war setting, I think maybe Obi Wan and Anakin could have been successful, um, and Obi Wan or excuse me, uh, Anakin wouldn't have fallen because Obi Wan's teachings would have been more applicable. But for Iscat and Sember, like they never had a shot because Sember just refused to open that door and trust her Padawan at all. It's such an interesting point you make, though, because that, I think, is something we don't just see with Sember. We see it again in those final acts, and this is really a, a recurring thing in Ishkat's life, is what's the difference between picking a Padawan or picking a partner because of that trust, of that actual force connection? Because you you feel some kind of camaraderie with them. Of course, the Jedi don't believe in, in attachments. We know that's false. But there is still that element, and we see the obvious downside in her becoming an Inquisitor. Where we also see it, though, is in the Inquisitorious, right? She wasn't picked for, for the Inquisitors because the person training really believed in her and adored her. No, she went in and she once again, for the second time in her life, had to prove her worth to people who didn't want her. And it's, it's I think, a really interesting parallel there because it's not like, oh, she's growing and growing and growing and then she heads into the Inquisitorious and she feels so at home and, and she feels like these are really her people and they believe the same thing she does. No, she's in the exact same situation she was in, in the Jedi temple of having to prove her worth to people who didn't want her. Yes. And in the Inquisitorious, like she is better able to do that. And so it, it, it you talked about it being a self-fulfilling prophecy. It kind of is there where she's going to be against that system in the Inquisitorious. Like, she's going to be pushing back against it because it's what she's always had in the Jedi Order. But then the skills that the Jedi Order were like, eh, don't use those, are actually going to help her in the Inquisitorious. So it kind of reinforces her ideas of, like, this is who I really am. Because in the Jedi, it's like she recognizes that's who she is in opposition to the Jedi Order and their beliefs. And so she uses that to justify why they are pushing her away. And with the Inquisitorious, she uses those same things to justify why they pulled her in and why they saved her. Um, and so it's like, it's home for her, really. Like, that's the thing. When you, when you think about people who have trauma in their childhood like that, like in adulthood, if they don't come and if they don't get the help that they need to really understand what they went through, which she definitely didn't, they're going to seek those same patterns because that pattern is home to them. They're going to look for something familiar, even if it is a damaging repetition of a cycle. And it takes the support that she never had, like the support that she did have from uh, from the Salonian droid guy who turned out to be a spy, like uh, was, you know, a, be a betrayal, like... She had one person that she kind of trusted, and that person ends up being somebody who manipulated her her whole life. Uh, it just, again, just pushes her towards seeking that same damning cycle that she never really finds her way out of until she just goes, okay, well, if I can't beat this cycle, I'm going to join it. Yeah, and then, I mean, look, look at the end. Um, as everyone knows, heavy spoiler alerts for all of our episodes— but it's, it's like the never-ending cycle with her. Because 
even that didn't work out. <laughs> so it's it's kind of this interesting aspect and, and something I hope we keep playing around with. I would love to see these characters again to really get that final point of, hey, when's this, when are they going to be happy? You know, like, what do they want and what do they need? There's a saying in screenwriting that the best tension is when what a character wants and what a character needs are at odds with each other. And that's perfectly, perfectly, perfectly executed in this story with both parts, with both the Jedi and I think with the Inquisitorious, where all Ishkat wants is really to feel this belonging, you know, and she she goes and finds her family and thinks maybe that's what it'll be. And she just wants this this belonging as part of a group and maybe what she needs is something totally different which obviously or ironically is is what Sember was trying to instill in her the whole time of this quiet meditation and maybe finding different ways to feel like you belong and that's something where it's it's such a satisfying story and and still a satisfying ending but we don't really get that, right? We don't get to see and live this out with her where she finds this place where she really does belong. What's interesting is she goes and she she finds her family, right? So I think she finds where she belongs. I just think she's incapable of accepting it, you know? Um, she's so broken at that point. It's it's really is, you know, her and, and the Inquisitorious is literally an abusive relationship on so many levels. And so she goes back to it because it's what she knows. And it's not saying she's a bad person because of it. She definitely becomes a bad person for other things, but she's just a broken person, you know, and, and years of being told she's not worth love. And then she goes back to this planet and she gets literally gets unconditional love right away. And it's, like she doesn't know how to handle it. And so she goes back to that thing that eventually leads to her demise. And so I actually want to kind of talk about that part a little bit more. Um, Cause I'm, I'm so curious and this is something I kind of keep mulling over and part of why this story has really stuck with me. That part that, yeah, she does go find kind of where she belongs. And I think any other author, and this is why I love Delilah Dawson and why it's so interesting reading about kind of her personal experiences with all of this any other author would have been like, hey, she found her family. This is great. She's going to live happily ever after. But instead, there's still just something there where she feels, no, this still isn't right. This isn't where I belong. And I kind of want to get your your thoughts on that and, and takeaways and why that might be. I mean, I think really it, it comes down to her not knowing how to accept that love, you know, Um really Iscat is is just a testament to somebody in need of mental health support who is unable to get it and so when she finds something that's a solution she doesn't know how to accept it so she just pushes it away you know it's for her it's easier to fail in the way that she knows than to succeed in a way that she doesn't know um because she she sees this darkness in herself and doesn't know how to i don't even want to say contain it cuz that that i think that's what the jedi tried to do she doesn't know how to accept it and to to move on from it right like we all have a darkness within us and you know 
some of us, the the good people in our society, you know, find ways to to manage that, to recognize it, acknowledge it, and let it go. Whereas those who are are detriments to society do the opposite. They go, well, this is the the quick and easy path. This gets me the whether it's the attention that I th- I want or whatever it might be. And I think for Iskat, that's the thing is she knows that her pension to kill, her pension to uh, go to the darkness has given her the attention that she was seeking, or she, not that she was seeking, it's given her attention and that is what she's been seeking. So what I mean by that is she wants this attention of being recognized as a good Jedi and I think being loved and accepted and everything like that. And she never gets that. So what she does is she accepts the attention that she does get, that from Palpatine, that from the Inquisitorius, and goes, okay, well, if I can't have what I want, like this is the closest thing I can get to it. So I'm going to change what I want so that it makes it feel like I've always, I gotten what I always wanted. It's this weird catch-22 cycle of, of damage that she does to herself. And so when she goes to meet her family and she gets the full story of what happened in her history and things like that, she's so broken at that point, she doesn't know how to accept it. And so she pushes it away because, it, it's again, it's easier to accept the hate that she knows than to accept the love that she doesn't know. And... For me, honestly, one thing I thought about is like, what about Ahsoka? And because in Tales of the Jedi, we get that ep- the the episode with young Ahsoka, you know, when she's born and everything like that, and then eventually taken from her family. And I was just thinking, man, if Ahsoka went back to her family after the fall of the Jedi, like, would she have been able to accept that yeah. and become a part of that community? Because her and Iskat are on like opposite sides of, mm-hmm. of you know, the, the pain that the Jedi caused and, and the reaction to it. Like Ahsoka goes more to being towards the light and to the Jedi and Iskat goes to the dark. And Well, because at the same time, though, Ahsoka was more accepted by the Jedi Order. So she kind of had that acceptance and love in a way. Until she didn't. didn't. Yeah, well, she did, but she's the one who walked away from it. So I think that kind of goes to your point of not, knowing what to do when you get that love. Um, but it's it's kind of also maybe shed some light because this is something that I, I was kind of angry with her with. I'm going to embarrass myself right now. I know that. But this is part of me reading books and not listening to the audiobooks. I have no idea how to say this character's name. I'm probably going to butcher it. Tuan? How, how did you say his name? Oh, uh, I honestly just kind of changed it uh Tulan. yeah yeah isn't it so funny when you're reading and you kind of just like recognize the word and don't say it in your head yeah um but that whole relationship i think kind of pissed me off not in a bad writing or easy writing but because it, it should have right it's like when your your friend goes back to the same partner time and time again no matter how bad it was like she had she shouldn't have sought his love and affection the way she did, but it was always right there. And I think the one thing she really wanted, and that's maybe why she doesn't feel the acceptance from her family or know how to accept that love from her family. And that's maybe why she cares more about him than ever being accepted by the Jedi or by the inquisitors is because they never really even dangled that acceptance in in front of her face. Whereas he did. 
and that relationship and that ending kind of now makes more sense when you when you put it in that frame. So we we get like the final chapter and her taking on the name of 13th sister and then we get that epilogue that you're kind of referring to. Did you think that the epilogue was necessary? I feel like a stronger ending for the book would have been just her accepting the name of the 13th sister. And we don't get that. And we kind of wonder what happens with her. Personally, I think that would have been a better ending to the book. What about you? So, yeah, I think it would be a better ending. But that's why I also think we'll get more stories from her. Because it's not just now, oh, I'm going to like keep my eye open for the 13th sister and some other stuff. No, I think now we're going to actually have a pathway to tell new and interesting stories about what happens to her, what happens to people who live the, leave the um, Inquisitors. And I'm not saying there's any direct connection at all. I'm not saying that this is someone we've seen in this book. I, I really and truly don't mean that. But it could also make more sense and shed some, some light on who Merrick is in Ahsoka. Because we know that they were an Inquisitor. Now, does that mean that they were an Inquisitor up until the very end and they really miss that and, and they want to bring that back? Or because Merrick is now working with Jedi, does that mean that maybe these two aren't the only Inquisitors to have left? Well, I mean, Merrick is Kanan, so come on. Get on, <laughs> get on the internet. Man. I almost died when you said oh said that God. the other day so there's people, some people, people think yeah don't don't google search it people just please don't <laughs> uh yeah no there's i think this book you know could be a test uh to see like hmm do we want to make like an inquisitor series of books you know because mm -hmm. the way it's titled inquisitor rise of inquisitor, the red rise of the red blade yeah. yeah but we could get you know and, and i'm not trying to say I think this is like in the works or whatever, but we could get Inquisitor, you know, Merrick and Inquisitor, like right, eighth brother right. or whatever. No, I, to like I totally agree. And for me, like, I really liked, like, I my two critiques of the book are, one, I liked the ambiguous ending of her taking the name 13th Sister. I kind of like books that end just like, you finally get to this point where you're like, yes, this is what I was wondering about. And then it's like, oh, it's over? Like, I want more. Like, leave your audience wanting more. And the other critique would be, like, I wanted more time in the Inquisitorious. Like, I, there are certain parts of it that I felt like were just summaries of what actually happened. And they could have been fleshed out more if this... Honestly, this book could have been a trilogy. Like, you could have had yeah. her time yeah. as a you know youngling, her time in the Jedi order as book one, you know, until like order 66 is the end of it. You have book two, which is her, you know, rising through the ranks of the inquisitors and finally coming to the name 13th sister. And then you have her demise in the third book. There's, I think it actually would have been better served kind of more of the star Wars format of have that middle first. Because mm. then, you know, like if you're just reading this story about like, Oh, here's this youngling and the Jedi order is mean to them as opposed to here's this inquisitor, really cool person like them a lot. Doesn't really seem to be fitting in with the inquisitors though. I wonder what made them that way. 
Yeah. But no, that's totally I, beside the point because it's not a trilogy. And that's, that's all it's got. not. It's not. But <laughs> I think it, it does say a lot when we want a book to be expanded on more. You know, uh, I think yeah. there are certain things, you know, Shadow of the Sith, for example, they could have done something like that. Um, and then you get, you know, as great as like the Alphabet Squadron trilogy is, like that could have been condensed into one or two books and it would have been just as impactful. Uh, and then you have books that shouldn't have been expanded as long as they did, like Aftermath, and they, yet they drug that out for a trilogy because, hey, we need a trilogy. And so I think it says a lot, you know, knowing that we've gotten trilogy formats in books that haven't exactly worked uh, over the past decade, that when we want a book to be a trilogy, especially in Star Wars, because trilogies in Star Wars mm. are so important. Like It's not like High Republic. High Republic is is, you know, this big endeavor that, you know, is built yeah. that way. Uh, but trilogies have a, a certain weight to them in Star Wars, and this would have would have been perfectly served as one. But yeah. as, as far as, like, the Inquisitorious goes and, and getting to see more of, you know, how Vader kind of runs that. And also, hold on, I'm sorry. I was going to ask you a different question, but I just got too excited. Let's talk about that scene where she, like, messes with the wires in Vader's suit Oh, yeah. Did you lose your cool. mind? That was so cool. It was you know amazing. What? And I I think it's something, and I'm realizing this more and more and more as we get other material. If this was the first time we saw it, I'd be like, what the heck? You know, like, this, this you can't do that. But because we've had other glimpses of things like Ezra toying with the AT&T, a, uh, AT&T, Jesus. AT&T <laughs> control. The AT&T sponsored by AT&T. Yeah. yeah. Next up on the Verizon episode. Um, <laughs> but because we've had little spurts of things like that already, it kind of made more sense. And I think that authors and storytellers in the TV show and everything, they're getting a lot better about taking things from other material and saying, all right, now that someone else did that, how can I, how can I play with this? You know, we have mm-hmm. Leia flo- floating through space and surviving. And that was the first time we ever saw someone like in space. And then in the comics, we have some people, you know, putting on masks and going outside the ship. And then we just had Ahsoka go outside the ship and have like an entire fight. But this I thought was a per- another perfect example of, hey, someone opened the door for this. What would that mean if someone more powerful could do it? Well, and, you know, the Leia thing, Kanan did it first. So we even get, like, he goes out just a little bit and, you know, flies back in. And she goes out farther and comes back in. Like, it really does, that dynamic you were talking about, what if somebody stronger did it? But I think even more importantly, like... So while I was watching the first episode of Ahsoka, spoilers for first episode for Ahsoka, but if honestly, if you're listening to this podcast, you've definitely seen it. Um, the the fight between Sabine and Shin Hati, to me, it, it's was such a beautiful use of a fight to tell a story. You know, like in action adventures, you a lot of times just have action for the sake of action. But one thing Filoni always does really well is he uses action action scenes for character development. And if you watch that fight, it's so blatantly clear that Sabine is is not proficiently trained with a lightsaber. Like she has very basic skills because Hati is just like 
she's toying with her, really. Like, she really is just toying with her for most of it. And so what Delilah Dawson does really well is, just like Filoni uses fight scenes to tell a story, Delilah Dawson uses violence to tell a story. And she does uses violence for character development, which when you're writing books like Phasma and like Inquisitor Rise of the Red Blade, that's a very impactful skill to have. And so for me, like that was the thing about a lot of the violence that we got from uh, Iscat is it wasn't just violence for violence's sake. It wasn't just, oh, we've got a dark side book, so we're going to, you know, do blood and guts and gore and there's going to be lots of action and people dying. Every violent act that she committed, uh, and I think the Vader thing is kind of the, the peak of that, tells a story and develops the character around her and so we see as she is fighting vader and she does that like she's starting to realize how she can manipulate her skills and and the impact of not just beating your opponent with pure power but but beating them with craftsmanship right and in the jedi order like everything she was fighting you know the droids all of the separatists and everything that she had to fight against she was just more powerful then and so she didn't really need to have skill and craft to defeat them right but when you're with the inquisitors and especially with vader coming around like she's not powerful enough to defeat them so what do you do you've got to find a different way and so she finds that craftsmanship right and then she'll later use that against um uh what was the was the Jedi's name that bullied the hell out of her and then she ended up killing in the end when she went to the Sith planet. Uh, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I'm talking about. I know, yeah. I can't remember her name. But anyways, like with her and then with Clef and Opus, like she manipulates them into defeat rather than just beating them off pure brute force like she was doing with the Geonosians and the droid. Yeah, and I mean, I think it also kind of saves her a little bit more too in our eyes because it's not just... Oh, here's this this mass murderer who loves killing and feels the most at at power and at ease when she is killing because there are some allusions to that after Geonosis and after a few other kills where she does feel comfortable with it. And then we see when she goes to bargain with the collector, you know, she doesn't want to kill him, but she knows she has to. But instead of being this this blood-hungry person who turns to the dark side because she really likes killing and all that, no. It's, it's this survival mode. And it is that element of taking it a step further and having that critical thinking even during all of this. And not just like watching a battle droid. There's a lot more manipulation that goes on. And I think it just makes her a more interesting character. Yeah, I mean, they're, it's hard to say somebody that, like, feels that, like, let's be clear about this. As much as I love Iscat, like, she's a villain. Like, there's, she's not, I don't like her because she's a hero. Like, she's not, you know, somebody I like, like Ahsoka or Luke Skywalker. I like, too, it's not even like you're rooting for her to go or not go to the dark side. You're just, like, along for the ride. Exactly, exactly. Like, she is, for me, she is an understandable character, um... In terms of her, the internal struggle that we get with her, I found very relatable. Uh, and and so, yeah, her actions are not justifiable, but they, they do, you know, they tell you something. You know, it's kind of like, 
with uh, Vi in uh, in Black Spire when she has to decide like whether she's going to you know fight the first order that's on the planet on Batu even though she knows they're not ready and it's like all right well I have to sacrifice this because I I want to do what's right and the doing what's right is more important than than what doing what's right right now is more important than this long-term goal because that's going to cost people lives right and Iscat's kind of the opposite of that is like I'm not getting what I want in the long term anyways so I'm just going to commit these acts of violence because it's going to give me the answer and the, the instant gratification that I want right now right and so that's really the thing about the dark side is it gives you that instant gratification it gives you that quick and easy path like it's hard to to do the right thing you know and violence will inherently give you power in the short term but i mean star wars tells us time and time again that it is going to end badly you know like it ended badly for phasma it ended badly for uh, you know the first order on bad like it, it just always and that's something that delilah dawson does so well is she makes it understandable why people go to these acts of violence, but she never justifies it. She never says it's okay. She never says it's the right thing. Like she's not, she's not writing a dark side book because she wants to write this cool dark side book. Like she is still very much sticking in the Star Wars uh, mythos of, you know, telling these dark side stories to show you what not to do. You know, when I'm teaching my kids about theme, I always ask them, is this story telling you what to do or what not to do? Right. And, Phasma and Inquisitor Rise of the Red Blade. And I'm thinking of other books that I've read of Delilah Dawson's. If you haven't checked out the hit series, um, read those two books. Like, I wish we had the third one. But it does a great exploration of that, too. Because in those books, like, kids have been essentially hired to pay off their parents' debt. And they have to be bounty hunters and go kill people. And it's like, she's not saying, you know, that they're making a good choice by going and killing people. But she's telling the story of what happens when somebody's back gets pinned in a corner, and yeah. you know. I mean, that's really. I feel like the theme of of all of her stories, yeah, is survival. That's really what it is. It's survival. It's not love. It's not even acceptance. Those are all kind of things thrown along the way. But so much of it is just how you know things get dark. How am I going to survive? Um, even Black Spire, who, where luckily that is a little bit lighter of a book, it's the same sense, right? Of how am I going to survive this and what do I have to do? Well, and she even gets into that with the Jedi Order. Like, I, I think, you know, she is one of the few people that could so perfectly show and not tell what was wrong with the Jedi Order because yeah. she really shows them trying to survive. You know, like they are trying to hold on to their power in order to help the Jedi Order survive. And they sacrifice what is right for their Padawans. They sacrifice their own moral code. They sacrifice their own standards in order to make that happen. Like that's what that knighting scene is about is, okay. And and the beautiful thing about getting to see it from Iscat's point of view, because when we see it from Anakin's point of view in Brotherhood, it's like he thinks he deserves it he thinks he's ready and Iscat's like I'm not ready you know and what do you do when that happens and when 
you know that the the institution that's putting that on you is more concerned with survival and maintaining their status quo than they are of actually doing what's right. Like we see a lot of reflection of that in our institutions in the modern era. Like these companies don't care about you anymore. They're going to get what they can get out of you in order to maintain their power. That's the same thing the Jedi yeah. Order was doing. I will say this too, since you bring up the, the knighting and being that ready, this can direct my memory here. Um, one of my big takeaways, and I love this, I love this for two reasons, is the part where, the parts really, where she is placed in charge of teaching and interacting with the younglings mm. because it does really pet the dog, right? It shows us like, hey, she's not this terrible monster of a, of a person or, or of a creature. No, she has like these, these redeeming qualities and the goodness could be in there somewhere. But then also, I think it really shows with how the Jedi were starting to mess up a little bit. Um, because imagine being like, oh, this person's not great. So I'm going to just put them in charge of teaching the next generation. Like, no, you should pick the person who is the best of the best and, yeah. and put them in charge. So I think it really kind of twofold showed some of Isket's strengths as well as the Order's weakness. Yeah, I mean, even the Jedi Order was seeking instant gratification. All right, cool. We will mm-hmm. we'll become generals because we're the ones who can end this war quickly. We'll, yep. we'll throw Iskad in here because, you know, it's the easy answer of what to do with her is just, you know, put baby in the corner and hope everything turns out okay, you know? And, and that to me, like, I love the Jedi. I, I love especially, you know, those Jedi like Ahsoka and Rey and Qui-Gon and Luke who are outside of the the what the order itself does you know because i think we get in star wars we get this interesting duality with the jedi of we've got enough jedi like ahsoka and luke and stuff to show us what the jedi are really about like what the real meaning of being a jedi is that we can take into our our own life and apply you know in terms of being a hero and stuff but we also get the what happens when things become too institutionalized and and we see really the damage that can do here because on so many levels they failed Iskat. Now I'm not saying she would have been a great Jedi. I'm not, you know, I don't know if she even would have been able to stop, you know, herself from going to the dark because she she so she spoke so badly to herself, you know, and had so many issues that she was just unwilling to handle. But the institution definitely pushed her along. And if you look at you know, most of the mental health issues in the world, you know, a lot of them have to be like, you're born with, uh, you know, certain makeup, but stuff has to be triggered, it has to be turned on, like that switch has to be flipped in order for these things to, to turn uh, to, to be challenges and not just be, you know, something that's kind of in the back of our DNA. And for ISCAT, like that switch was flipped, they plugged in an extension cord, they added more switches, like they just they lit the place on fire and we see what happens because of it. Like she, like I said, she is, she is somebody that I can relate to and understand, which is beautiful, but she is not somebody I look up to. It's not like a, you know, inferno squad, you know, where it's like, all right, I didn't had the right morals, but was just turned in the wrong direction. And so when she gets her compass, right, she is able to, you know, figure it out. And she's somebody you can look to, to see how you can overcome that. 
Iscat is a a warning. It is a she is a giant flashing warning sign of everything that can go wrong if you don't face your own demons and if the people and the family around you um, don't help you face those demons too. So to me, this book is you know we have stories that tell us what to do and what not to do. This is a tragedy, man. It's telling you what not to do both as an individual, but then also, you know, what we need to to try to avoid doing in our institutions and in our cultures that has negative impacts on our, our future generations. Yeah, here, here. What a great book. God, I love this book. We could talk about it for another two or three hours, I'm sure. But we're going to wrap it up there because uh, if you've gotten this far and you haven't read the book, I think we we talked about ideas and stuff more than we did the actual plot. So I do think you can get a lot out of it um, by, by reading it. But I mean, if you maybe read it and you didn't love it as much, maybe you can go back now, check it out again and see if you can notice some of the stuff that made it just a, a total of 11 out of 10 for us. And I'm assuming Lindsay, that your score, uh, has not changed. Oh yeah. I mean, I didn't know I could do a six. Maybe I'll bring it up to a six, but no, I'll keep, I'll keep it my five out of five. All right. Well, I'm going to put it at seven out of five now. So I love this. <laughs> no, I mean, I immediately, you know, tweeted at Delilah Dawson about how important this book was and, and was telling everybody from the moment I finished this book that you need to go read it. So if, uh, if you haven't definitely go check it out. Um, hopefully this is, I mean, very few authors are batting a thousand in terms of writing Star Wars books, Ooh, uh, especially yeah. as we get some of these repeats. You know, we've we've got even with Claudia Gray, there's some that we didn't like as much as others. Kevin Scott, some we didn't like as much as others. But Delilah Dawson is three for three on amazing Star Wars books. So hopefully they're going to keep her around. Hopefully she's going to keep writing some books. And God, I would love if she got to write please, something. Please around the acolyte or something like that where we get oh. dark side but in the high republic oh. era Oof, oh love it. god i hope so it'd be so cool it'd be so cool but next book she does right we're going to talk about it here on don't burn the sacred text so make sure you are subscribed uh on whatever podcatcher you're listening on now tell a friend word of mouth is huge uh, we've got a bunch of new listeners coming in. We love you guys. We appreciate you being part of the operation we've got going on here. Uh, we are all about, you know, Lindsay and I agreed on pretty much everything today, but this network, if you listen to our shows, we don't agree on everything. Uh, we don't all have the same perspective on Star Wars. And so there's a little bit for everybody. Every kind of Star Wars fan uh, is represented here. So make sure you're subscribed to check out all of our shows, which you can get all in this one feed. And then follow us on all of the socials uh, at Clashing Sabers. And of course, our Facebook group has become even more active. I'm posting a lot of videos and questions and stuff on there. So make sure you are over there and joining in on the conversation. And Lindsay, if they want to find you uh, and see what you are up to, where can they do that? Best place to do it for right now is over on that Facebook group, Clashing Sabers, uh, Star Wars Clashing Sabers. Uh, maybe I got off Twitter quite some time ago and life is great because of it, but maybe someone over in that Facebook group could, uh, sway me to join threads or whatever it is, the, the new anti-Twitter, um, might be, might be on that pretty soon. I don't know. Just cause I do miss talking about Star Wars, but in a much healthier and conversational way. Um, but yeah, go over, join the Facebook group. Uh, make sure you mention me and then tell me why I should or shouldn't uh, hop back in the conversation over on threads. 
All right, so go do that right now, and uh, we will talk with you guys soon. But until then, keep reading, keep writing, but whatever you do, don't burn the sacred text. All Clashing Sabers productions are the intellectual property of the Clashing Sabers network and ClashingSabers.net. All licensed sounds and images are the property of their respective copyright holders and are used for informational and educational purposes only. For more information on our nonprofit or to nominate a teacher, go to ClashingSabers.net. For questions or inquiries, please email us at ClashingSabersNetwork at gmail.com. You're just going to walk away?